This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Following a high-profile career in finance, in which he became one of the first well-known hedge fund managers, Michael Steinhardt began the Taglet Birthright Israel program, a philanthropic enterprise which has provided free 10-day trips to Israel for some 220,000 Jewish youth to learn more about their heritage. Steinhardt spoke with Knowledge at Wharton about how the program helps to improve the country's image and the challenges of what he calls a deteriorating educational system in Israel, marked by a brain drain of higher education professors. Steinhardt also discusses the country's culture of business innovation and how deep democratic roots can sometimes slow progress. Uh, Mr. Steinhardt, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. I'd like to ask a question about what something that you wrote in the book, No Bull. Uh, you said that the formation of Israel had a profound impact on you, especially the image of uh, people rising like a phoenix uh, from the ashes of the Holocaust. Can you tell me a little bit about that impact and what it has done to shape your thinking and your life? The question itself is not so complicated, but the answer is because for me, Israel became the substitute for the Jewish religion, which was fading in importance for me as I became an adult. And in some sense, Israel was the miracle, the Jewish miracle in my life. Uh, referred as you did uh, uh, as a phoenix rising from the ashes because because I didn't believe in miracles. And yet the circumstance of Israel's birth and uh, the well-articulated vision of a relatively few people surrounded by by tens or hundreds of millions of enemies uh, uh, who were outnumbered in all sorts of ways, managing to uh, to uh, survive and ultimately achieve a vigorous, uh, uh, democratic, uh, prosperous society is an extraordinary phenomenon. And for many secular Jews, it has been the single miracle of the 20th century for that and other reasons related to its own growth, the fact that it, uh, it attracted so many of the world's poorest third world uh, uh, Jews from places like Ethiopia and Morocco and, uh, and has done so many wonderful things. So I am totally biased, totally unobjective in terms of Israel and its history. Well, that's a great answer. And, and I think that based on what you just said, uh, it, it also suggests that the image of Israel being surrounded by enemies has often had the effect of the country being seen as a, as a zone of conflict. Uh, what effect has this had on, if you think about it in corporate terms, Israel's brand? And, and what has this meant uh, for Israel's image as a country around the world? Well, that's a very good question because on the one hand, for its 
first 30, maybe 40 years of existence, Israel was clearly viewed as an underdog uh, because of the its uh, limited population and uh, and the fact that uh, those around it seemed so much stronger, had all that oil, population, power. But and that and that on some level remains true. However, in the last twenty or even thirty years, maybe even forty years, something has changed in that brand because Israel in the Six Day War won such an overwhelming victory that it, I don't like to use the word occupied, but it uh, 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 conquered, it occupied, I can't use a better word, uh, lands that there here to then to four had been uh, uh, not occupied by another Arab country, but had either been uh, um, disputed or in one way or another not controlled by Israel, controlled by Jordan perhaps, or in some ways not controlled at all. But that process whereby in the last 40 years, Israel has now been seen as an occupying power, has changed that image to the broad detriment of Israel's overall world image. And so Israel has gone from an underdog to something else. And that has changed Israel's ability to gain sympathy. And I'm not sure how important that is, but one can't deny that uh, even though Israel has a population of 7 million and is still surrounded by vastly stronger countries, in its immediate region, it is stronger than the Palestinians and probably than the countries immediately surrounding it. And it has, uh, unfortunately, taken on the role of a militarily superior power, and it has given gotten a different image, one that I think is found to be unfortunate in some respects in the world, and that uh, quality has been taken advantage of by its enemies and by very many other people who are not necessarily its enemies, but see the opportunity to take advantage of it and to use all sorts of imagery in terms of uh, making terrible analogies between the Holocaust and Israel being a Holocaust uh, creator, things like that, so that Israel's image in the world has really declined. And I think, I think, if one could have an index, which one can't, but if there were an index of Israel's image in the world over a period of time, if there were an index of the, of the U.S.'s uh, 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 an index of the U.S.'s image in the world. Uh, uh, if there were any such indices, I think Israel's would probably be at a low today.
Do, do you understand what I mean? Oh, absolutely. And in yeah. fact, uh, you know, the, the, the question I wanted to ask you is, uh, uh, based on what you just said about the fact that Israel has a small population of 6 million, uh, Israeli companies are therefore dependent on growth, not just on the domestic market, but at a relatively early stage of their life trying to be, go global. And, and I wonder what the image of the country uh, does to the prospects or the marketing challenge that Israeli companies face. Uh, could you, could you, could you s uh, speak to that? Well, that's, that, that's, that's something that I have found enigmatic over the uh, years that I have uh, paid attention to Israel. And I, who views himself as a Zionist, have paid attention to Israel and its fate and its fortunes up and down, basically pretty much since its birth. And... I must say that I, at times I have really been surprised at the intimacy of some of its commercial relationships at times when its political relationships with those same countries have been dramatically and starkly different. An example of that would be India, where Israel has had uh, close uh, commercial relationships for a long, long time, while for various periods during that uh, uh, time frame, uh, uh, political relations have been weak at best. Now, its commercial relations continue strong, and its political relations have gotten considerably stronger, in part, I suspect, because India has begun to recognize that Israel is a reliable, strong ally in a world uh, where it finds itself surrounded by uh, uncomfortable uh, neighbors. So uh, 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 India has finally been more comfortable in being more overt in its political uh, relationship with with uh, Israel. Maybe that's a little simplistic, but not not very much more than a little simplistic, I would say. So th that's but one example of where where the commercial relationship has been strong, almost covertly for a long period of time, and has now become overt. Is that is that an answer to your question? Uh, yes, it is. In fact, the only sort of footnote I would add, and this is not a question as as a sort of reaction to what you said. Uh, in addition to the political ties, there's also been a strong cultural uh, affinity between Israel and India, Indeed. Uh, based partly on the fact that uh, there have been Indian Jewish communities active in the commercial sphere for many, many years. Indeed. And some of the leading philanthropists uh, who have done wonderful things in India uh, have been people like David Sassoon and others who, uh, who have contributed enormously to the growth of India. Uh, and, and I think that is in some ways uh, coming to its own given the global political, geopolitical situation, uh, the most dramatic example of which was seen recently in the terrorist attacks on Bombay. Uh, you're you you entirely right. I, uh, as an aside, I just came back from Israel about a week ago, and as you may know, I uh, helped create an enterprise, a philanthropic enterprise in Israel, which is called Taglit in Hebrew, meaning discovery, and in English, uh, it's called Birthright Israel. And I was there for a 
summer launch. And during that summer launch, we had 40, I think it was 40, young Indian Jews coming to birthright. And I was amazed that from the Indian population, I think all of these 40 young people were from Mumbai. And it was a wonderful thing to see these young people celebrating their Jewishness in Israel on birthright, having been from Mumbai. And uh, there was something very special about it. I have a friend who runs an organization who has devoted considerable energy to bringing the, I think it's called the B'nai Israel population. Now that's not from Mumbai, that's from the another section of India to make Aliyah from India to Israel. So you are right, there is an important cultural history and I think India has mixed feelings about the efforts of some Israelis to attract Indian Jews to leave India to live in Israel. But there is a special relationship there. Uh, you're absolutely right. In fact, I don't know if the students you met happened to mention that the oldest synagogue, one of the oldest synagogues in India happens to be in Bombay or in Mumbai. Uh, uh, but but to come back to your uh, your your fascinating program, the the, the birthright program, uh, could you tell us a little bit about what inspired you to start it and what 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 your goals and your dreams were about that program? Sometimes dreams are more important than goals. I agree with you. In the world today, there are depending upon one's definition between 12 and 14 million Jews. At the end of World War II, after the Holocaust, the number of Jews was not much different than it is today, reflecting in some sense how bad how weak our demography is. At one point, before World War II, it was said that there were 18 or 19 million Jews, and six or so million were lost in the Holocaust. But now, how many years later? 45, that's 60 plus years later, there has been very, very little population growth. And you can ask the question why. I was just about to. Uh, because in a normal context, the number of Jews in the world should have grown quite a lot. But after World War II, particularly, it was so uncomfortable for so many people to be Jewish that there was a great deal of out-migration. People named Levy became Lang, and people 
changed their names from Jewish names to Anglicized names, and people did all sorts of things to avoid being Jewish. And that happened in America, and it happened in Europe, and even today in Russia, and in other parts of Eastern Europe, there are so many strange and unusual, sometimes miraculous things happening. In Poland, for instance, it was determined that there were a few thousand Jews at most left. And now it's grown to maybe 15,000. Where'd those people come from? They came from their parents or their grandparents telling their children that they were really not their grandparents, but that they were given these babies during the war to take care of them, and they brought them up, but their real parents were killed in the Holocaust. So many people are finding out that they were really Jewish. And this isn't a vast number of people, but it's a meaningful number of people. So Poland suddenly has at least some Jewish population. Now, put it in perspective that there were three million Jews in Poland, and maybe now there are 10 or 15,000. But there's this great burst of Yiddish and Jewish culture in Poland. In Russia, if you speak to Sergio della Pergola, who is the great demographer at Hebrew University, he will say there's 300 or 400 or at most 500,000 Jews in Russia. If you speak to the Chabad organization, they will say there's two million Jews in Russia. Now, it's not a question of miscounting. It's a question of perception as to who is Jewish and, uh, and how you define Jews and who is coming back and, uh, and who during that long uh, twilight period called communism when religion was outlawed, who forgot their Judaism and who, uh, who didn't and, uh, and who is now remembering it. So you have all sorts of strange things like that happening. But the fact is, the fact is that there are very, very few of us. And, in, and one can almost cavalierly say that there are only two centers left in the world that really matter of Judaism. And those two centers are Israel and North America, where Israel has uh, between five and six million Jews, a population of seven million. And the United States has maybe, maybe six million Jews. And if you take that six and almost six, you get to 12 and maybe the rest of the world, you can squeeze out another two. That is it. But in the United States, you have an intermarriage rate that is something like 50%. And if you go west of the Mississippi, it's like 80%. If you go to Denver and uh, San Francisco is overwhelming. So that in the secular, the non-Orthodox Jewish community, we are integrating, assimilating, which follows the long traditional American pattern. But if a Jew disappears, 
there's nothing there to replace him. If a Catholic isn't a Catholic, well, he still celebrates Christmas. He's still a Christian. But if a Jew disappears, what does he become? Probably a Christian. So I started Birthright to try to instill in the non-Orthodox Jewish next generation a sense of their Jewish heritage. And that's basically what it's about because the quality of Jewish education in America is really poor. And these kids who come on birthright are in general Jewish, forgive my saying it, ignoramuses. They really know very little. Most of them, many of them at least, go on the trip because it's a free trip and they take a free trip to Israel or India or Italy or Ireland, but they're only offered a free trip to Israel. And many of them come back understanding that there is something to their Jewish heritage. They come back understanding that when they walk on the cemetery on Mount Zion and they see photographs on the graves of 20-year-old uh, uh, Israeli soldiers that if not but for an accident of history they could have been a soldier in the Israeli army as opposed to a, uh, uh, a kid growing up in Great Neck and living an upper middle class life uh, filled with luxury and never having to think about the military. So the idea is to create at this last moment in youth a sense of Jewish identity which the Jewish education system in America has failed to do. Sorry for the long answer, but... Uh, no, uh, don't, don't apologize. It was, great. It's a, it was a great answer. Has the program uh, achieved what you wanted it to? I think, I think the, the real answer to that will only be seen in the longer term. There are some positive indications. We've sent 220,000 young people on this program from, I think, 52 different countries. And... I think as many as 15,000 have returned to Israel, even though the objective is not for them to return to Israel, not for them to make Aliyah, but some of them are deeply inspired. And I think many of them, to the degree we can measure it, and we do measure it, uh, act differently than their peer groups who have not gone on birthright they tend to want to marry Jewish people. They tend to want to observe Shabbat, things like that, relatively more. So there are at least superficial indications that it is having a positive impact. In your, in your professional life, you think so consciously about return on investment. How would you measure the return on the investment you have made in the birthright program? I, I would consider it almost infinite. You know, I'm, I'm, I am an absolutely a religious person. I'm an atheist, actually. So I don't believe in these, uh, you know, if you save one soul or three souls, you save the world. I mean, that's, I guess, a, a religious concept. But, but so many of these young people have had their lives changed, and they say it openly and, and, and happily and proudly. So I, I guess I buy that, those statements, and uh, 
I, I feel that uh, that uh, 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 that somehow these ten days it's only ten days you know think about you in your life how many ten days do you even remember in your life so I think that these ten days have had a remarkable impact on many many of these kids and in that sense that that justifies the the investment that's great and uh, in, in, as you were speaking I could almost see in microcosm uh, the, the the program that you described as being a part of the solution to the top the, the issue we began with which is uh, how does one market Israel and improve the Israeli brand uh, are you aware of other such programs uh, that have had a positive effect on Israel's reputation any other examples you could offer along those lines the diaspora community has at various times organized itself to try to facilitate uh, the success of Israeli commercial brands and to my knowledge none of this has been very meaningful getting together and buying Israeli food products and other things. I don't know of anything that's meant very much. My, my feeling here, I have, I have, I have a, some strong views, and, let me, and, and some of them are a little bit enigmatic, and let, let me state them, and they're not exactly directly uh, responsive to your question, but you'll, you'll see what I mean. Israel from the time of its inception was viewed as a place without natural resources. It was surrounded by countries with oil and other things and it had nothing. It was a largely desert country that had but one asset and that asset was the Jewish brain thus all that talk in the early days of its statehood about how it turned its land green and the land around it was mostly brown how it had used its ingenuity its technology in agriculture uh, to achieve miraculous uh, uh, improvement in in, uh, in agricultural uh, 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 productivity, etc., etc., and it was true. And indeed, some of that sort of stuff has gone into international markets. It has a big, big, big business in um, in. Um, uh, in uh, what are those things, those pipes and those other things. I mean, forgive me for not being more articulate, but it really has a wonderful uh, uh, world recognition as, uh, as an expert in, uh, uh, in, uh, in uh, using scarce water resources very effectively through uh, uh, fertilization and other things and it has become a world leader in in that but that's again not my point my point is that it was the brain the israeli brain the jewish brain that was greatly emphasized 
And in the first years of its existence, it built a number of universities, mostly from emigre European intellectuals who were first-rate by any standard. First-rate by any standard. But now it's 60-plus years later, and the Israeli education system has fallen apart. Fallen apart. Shockingly so, where both the higher education system and the secondary system are ranked well toward the bottom of the OECD measurements, and there are measurements. And it's almost shocking that Israel, which is the product of the great Jewish brain and the great emphasis on education and the Jewish value, which is education, has fallen to such a low level. And there have been, as you may or may not know, all sorts of uh, education uh, commissions and educational uh, 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 conclusions and recommendations within Israel as to how to change things, and the results to date have been zero. Why did that happen? What do you think went wrong? That's a good question. Um, uh, I think what went wrong, which goes wrong perhaps in a number of Western countries, is, is number one, the country allocates insufficient resources to its world of education so that the teachers in Israel are paid really poorly. Now, you might say they're paid really poorly in a lot of places, but in Israel they are really paid. Relative to uh, other countries, they're paid appallingly poorly. Appallingly poorly. In the higher education system, a good 25% of Israel's senior professors have left Israel and teach in first-class universities in other countries, mostly in the United States, seemingly on a permanent basis. So when you talk about brain drain, there ain't no brain drain as there has been in Israel. So, so a vast number of people have left Israel for considerably higher salaries outside of Israel in higher education. And in secondary education, the compensation is appallingly poor. Statement, objective statement by almost any measure. Then you might then ask the question, well, what's going on? If that's happened, why does Israel continue to have this extraordinary degree of innovation? Why do we have, why does Israel have the second largest or the first largest number of NASDAQ uh, listings of any foreign country, blah, 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 blah. You hear all these things that don't seem to make sense in light of the fact that its education system is so bad. What's the answer? I'm not sure. There are two possible answers, I'd say. One the economist's answer, which is that there's a lag. The lousy education system is going to catch up with them and they're going to start 
falling apart in terms of innovation and stuff like that. Another uh, different answer is that so much of this extraordinary innovation which has created these extraordinary companies which have done so well doesn't come so much from their education system but comes from their military. From their military. And their military continues to be truly first rate. Another possible answer is they got this extraordinary injection of people beginning in the 1990s where almost 20% of their population was in one fell swoop added from Russia. And that was a highly educated population and that added a lot to their innovative potential. Could it also be that the Israeli brain is more resilient than people sometimes give credit for? And that's another interesting question. What is it about that environment that provokes innovation, that provokes competition? It is, I assure you, the toughest, most competitive environment in the world. And maybe education or no education, these people work in an environment that is so challenging that somehow only the fittest survive, and when they do survive, they become extraordinarily able. And it seems that there's something to that, but I'm not exactly sure how exactly you articulate that. Necessity being the mother of invention well, might be one way. That's one way to say it, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Despite all, all, all the things you just described, uh, th- there seem to be so many obstacles that Israel faces in improving its public image. How can these be overcome? Well, there's been a great deal of focus on that question. And the Hebrew word used to describe what you're talking about is Hasbara. Do you know that word? Uh, no. Could you please explain what it means? Hasbara means explanation, means uh, to help in articulating who one is, who we are, uh, who we are supposed to be. I'm not doing such a good job of it, but I think you got the sense that Israel's Hasbara is not so good. Israel's effort at explaining itself is a failure. And this has been a self-criticism of Israel for a long time. It's as if if Israel's Hasbara was better, then its public image would therefore be better. How can Israel improve its Hasbara? I have a different view. I My view is that Hasbara invariably reflects reality and you can't get away from it entirely. I mean, if you're there in Israel, you can understand it in in more sympathetic detail perhaps, but how can you get away from the fact that you're an occupying power. Now, those are harsh words, and it's not nearly that way, but 
in the unsympathetic world at large, in the Islamic world at large, they're not going to uh, say anything nicer than that. And, and even when Israel has done things that were profoundly ameliorating, it's gotten no credit. We left Gaza voluntarily. We left Lebanon voluntarily. There ain't been nobody uh, giving a party for Israel saying, Israel, thank you very much. You left Lebanon. You left Gaza. Nothing. Nothing. So it's not a world that celebrates Israel under any circumstance. And I'm not sure Israel has the ability through its Hasbara or any other way to change very much of that. And that goes back to another issue which we haven't directly discussed, but you can't in any discussion of Israel totally ignore, and that is anti-Semitism. And that's a somewhat enigmatic to me. But one can't but acknowledge it. One can't acknowledge that in throughout the Islamic world, the textbooks are filled with anti-Semitic trash, anti-Israeli trash for kids. Why they this is allowed, I really don't know. But you know, unless and until that changes, you know, we're fighting an uphill battle in those places. And the bulk of anti-Semitism in the world is Islamic. Is there some other anti-Semitism? I guess. But the bulk of it is Islamic. One variation of this is, uh, is there anything you think Israel could do to market itself to non-Jewish populations? In view of your atheism, you might have some unique insights on that. Well, Israel is remarkably popular with certain Christians, particularly fundamentalist Christians, uh, Christians who are deep believers in the literal Bible. And Israel gets a large number of its tourists in the world from these sorts of Christians. I go to Israel often and uh, this last, the second last time I was there was in the fall and it was uh, a day called Jerusalem Day and there's a parade and the parade consists almost entirely of Christians marking, marching in Jerusalem Day and these people are all Christians who believe and love Israel primarily for its religious context. Now I'm not so much of a theologian as to be able to explain what these Christians believe. They believe, I think, something related to the next coming or the, the coming of Christ and uh, something is to happen uh, then. I, you have to find someone more knowledgeable than I. But, uh, but Israel is popular with, with meaningful numbers of, of Christians. Uh, and uh, I don't know what else it can do. It is a totally, it is an open democracy. It has the most uh, 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 combative, argumentative, 
democratic newspapers and uh, and media. It is a democracy like almost no democracy on this earth. And in that sense, one should admire it. It really is a good place to uh, to to be. Uh, so it's a place that uh, that true Democrats have to admire. Uh, it's too democratic in a certain sense. It has too many parties, and they can't get anything done. It uh, gives the uh, religious uh, uh, who are, uh, in my view, uh, take advantage who take advantage of certain things too much uh, uh, leeway. Uh, religious. Uh, uh, ultra-religious young people in Israel don't have to serve in the army. They don't have to do all sorts of things that other citizens uh, do as responsible uh, Israelis. Uh, but it's a it, it's because it's a very very uh, respectful uh, democracy. Now, is it so simple? No. Uh, are the Arab citizens of Israel given uh, votes, uh, rights to vote, etc., etc.? Absolutely. But are they treated uh, as second-class citizens in some ways? That's true, because they have such security concerns. But uh, I don't have a, you know, I could, I could say things that might sound good about Israel, what they might do to improve their image, but the real, the real objective in improving Israel's Hasbara, the real objective, is to come to something better than a cold peace with the uh, neighbors that it's made peace with, Jordan and Egypt, and to come to a real agreement with its immediate neighbors. And if it did that, that would improve its image like nothing else. That if Israel, for instance, could make a peace agreement with some of the distant Arab countries, if Israel could make a peace agreement with Saudi Arabia, and if in so doing Israel would make meaningful and could make meaningful concessions on the West Bank and places like that, that would enormously improve its image. But they're not going to do those things for image reason alone. Right. One final question. Yes, sir. If we had in this chair uh, Mr. Benjamin Netanyahu uh, sitting right here asking you for one piece of advice that, that you could give him to improve Israel's marketing abilities or Israel's Hasbara. What advice would you offer? The advice I think I would offer Bibi at the moment and this is a very momentary uh, statement, and I say momentary because of the immediate focus on Obama's recent statements. I think Israel has been, and, and Netanyahu have been put on the defensive by Obama, and uh, Netanyahu, in his recent remarks, have responded to that, uh, to, to Obama by saying things like, uh, we're prepared to have a, a um, demilitarized uh, Palestinian state and things like that, which are unrealistic. And my advice would be not to, not to, to do less, less on the f front of 
of, uh, of uh, making world headlines and uh, and responding to Obama because I think Obama will go his own way and he'll have plenty of other problems to deal with besides uh, besides uh, uh, besides Israel and I don't think Israel has very much to offer unless some of the Arab states, the other Arab states, become forthcoming, and I don't think they're going to become so forthcoming. But what I would do, and I think ultimately this is the thing that has to be done for Israel to become a great nation, I would devote enormous effort to making Israel what it once was, in terms of being a light unto the nation. And in order to do that, what Netanyahu has to do is dramatically improve Israel's education system to the point where, again, it is right at the top of the world. And it's not there now, but it can be. But it's going to take an enormous change. A change which asks very fundamental questions, such as, is it necessary for there to be a different system between the religious and the secular, so they, so they are segregated from each other? Uh, is it necessary for the Arabs to go to different schools than the Jews? Is it um, um, uh, is uh, is it uh, necessary for uh, for college tuition to be but uh, two or three thousand dollars and therefore to put so many strains on so many places uh, so that uh, so that the government becomes the overwhelming uh, factor if he's a, such a free market person I think he's got to uh, face the fact that tuition should go up a lot that the whole education system should change and should be measured so that Israel can be right at the top of the world's quality of education where it was at the beginning of its statehood and should be again and I think if it does that it will maybe not in a year or two but ultimately uh, uh, regain a great deal in terms of its image. Michael Steinhardt, thank you so much for speaking with us today. You are most welcome. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.